Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of sexual abuse and sexual acts involving minors. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. A 17-year-old, who for their privacy will refer to as Emily, sat next to the leader of her church at a bustling restaurant. Her mother and father looked on with concern from across the table. She scowled and tried to ignore them. Emily liked to think of herself as independent, but her parents still treated her like a child. She bristled when her father spoke up to ask her why she had called them there in the first place. Though Emily didn't want to admit it, she was nervous about how they would react to her big news. She stayed silent. But her dad followed up, demanding to know why their church leader, James King, was attending the dinner too. 47-year-old King smiled and nudged Emily with a familiarity that made her mother's stomach turn. Then Emily leaned forward and said, When I turn 18, James and I are going to get married, have kids, and move to Montana or Chile. Her parents just stared at Emily and King. They couldn't believe what they were hearing. They watched in horror as King ran his fingers through his gray and thinning hair, seemingly completely unfazed by the situation. In that moment, the illusion of integrity he'd built with Emily's parents shattered. Now they saw him for who he truly was, and they were determined to take him down. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Last week, we delved into a little-known religious group called the New Gnostic Church. Based around Seattle, Washington, it was run by leader James King from the early 1990s until 2005. We previously covered how King built his church, exploited his members, and first met his closest accomplice, Barbara Loran. This week, we'll learn more about how he took advantage of members sexually, including a minor. We'll also discuss the church's eventual downfall and the legal trouble that dogged James King and Barbara Loran. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover inside the house there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. 
1998, the new Gnostic Church had been fully established by 40-year-old James King. The self-empowerment techniques and New Age philosophy he offered to his congregation enticed a group of an estimated 50 to 75 members in all. King told each of them they were vessels of divine wisdom, uniquely capable of leaving their material worries behind. But behind this enticing veil, King took advantage of his devotees at every opportunity. When it came to finances, he frequently nagged members to donate to the church, but that was only the beginning. He also urged them to invest in business ventures that he could directly profit from. Meanwhile, he used the private practice of 37-year-old Barbara Loran, a chiropractor and naturopath, to lure in fresh blood. She lured in potential recruits in her office, a place where patients should have felt safe. Then, King tried to sway them into joining his church. He also illegally gave health advice and chiropractic adjustments. It seems that Loran and King used her chiropractic appointments as opportunities to exert more influence over their followers' decisions. Appearing to utilize their positions of power, King and Loran had sex with several new members, using Loran's practice as a hunting ground. The couple grew more confident. Over time, it became easier to convince people to do their will, and the pair became less inhibited. Then, in 2001, King was introduced to an underage girl who came to him in desperation. To protect the anonymity of the family, pseudonyms have been given. 13-year-old Emily struggled with serious depression and suicidal thoughts. Her mother, who we'll refer to as Laura, had taken her daughter to see a therapist, but so far the sessions hadn't helped her with her psychological pain. At a loss for what to do next, Laura turned to her religion. She and Emily's father, Ken, had joined the new Gnostic church and seen improvement in their own lives. Laura likely thought that if King could help them, he could also help Emily. So Laura took her young daughter to meet 43-year-old King, from there, though, things didn't go as planned. Unbeknownst to Laura or Ken, King started pursuing Emily. Vanessa is going to take over in the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but we have done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. In an article written by Dr. Elizabeth L. Jeglick titled, How to Recognize the Sexual Grooming of a Minor, she defined the concept of grooming as the deceptive process by which a would-be abuser, prior to the commission of sexual abuse, selects a victim, gains access to and isolates the minor, develops trust with the minor and often other adults in the minor's life, and desensitizes the minor to sexual content and physical contact. Jeglik also outlined the many ways an adult might attempt to groom a minor. For example, they may develop and maintain trust with the child's family or openly discuss sexual activity to desensitize the minor to the subject. Jeglik also notes that privately communicating with a minor outside of their parents' knowledge was a typical tactic. Early on, 43-year-old King went through the standard new Gnostic church initiation routine with the 13-year-old. While the finer details of these moments are unknown, usually King brought new members to his estate in Wakanda, Washington, and processed them for hours each day. During these processing sessions, he grilled these initiates about their past traumas and failures. The experience lasted a week. Despite the intensity of the interrogation, the experience seemed to help Emily at first. At least outwardly, her depression dissipated, and not long afterward, she became an active part of the church. 
Emily's parents were delighted to see her doing better. Their decision to bring their daughter to King seemed to have paid off. Everything was going exactly according to King's plan. During this time period, the church reached its peak membership. As many as 100 people called the church their spiritual home. However, Emily had a difficult time fully integrating with the community. The other church members were at least 10 years older than her, which perhaps made her feel somewhat isolated. Yet even with that disconnect, four years passed for Emily and her family in the new Gnostic church. In fall of 2004, Emily turned 17. As a high schooler, she likely faced new pressure to be sexually active. And like all the other church members, she reached out to King for advice. Looking for guidance from the spiritual leader, Emily sent the 47-year-old an instant message. King responded quickly, asking her to call him as soon as she could. So she did, and the two of them talked. He encouraged her to meet him for a meal the following week. One day after school, King picked up Emily and they drove to an Italian restaurant. There, he told her he had the perfect solution to her so-called sexual issues. King said he and Loran had been looking for a third person to engage in a sexual relationship with them. Then, mimicking a move he often used on some of his other followers, King also told Emily that she appeared romantically interested in him. This had worked in the past. By projecting this idea onto his members, King made it seem like he knew them better than themselves. Emily, at such a young age, couldn't help but feel flattered by the attention. The leader of her church, the one who'd helped her out of her depression, was interested in her. However, she still hesitated. But King wouldn't take no for an answer. Over the next few weeks, he and Emily continued talking it over. Loran also started texting the teen, trying to get her on board. At one point, King even brought up Washington laws to sway Emily. In the state, it was legal for 16 and 17-year-olds to have sex with adults, as long as those adults weren't in a supervisory role or were five or more years older than the minor. King didn't mention the age difference, but asked Emily if she thought he fit the description of a supervisor. Even though she actually felt he did, she answered no to please him. It's not hard to imagine that the power imbalance made her feel like she couldn't refuse King. Towards the end of November, a few weeks after first confiding in the church leader, Emily finally slept with the couple. Over the next few months, the three of them had sex ten times. During this period, Emily's behavior changed, and she started to become distant from her parents. To aid in the detachment, and likely to further groom Emily, King and Loran went to extreme lengths. They even bought her a cell phone. They used the new number to text her, notably avoiding detection from Emily's parents. King and Loran had successfully formed a wedge between Emily and her loved ones. They often told her that she shouldn't trust her parents. According to the couple, her mom and dad were crazy. For a while, it seemed that King and Loran's plan was working, perhaps even too well, because Emily suddenly started referring to her mother by her first name. The move set off alarm bells for her parents. They knew something was different about her, and they worried it had something to do with King. So Emily's mother confronted King, who denied that anything was going on. 
Then, on December 30, 2004, 17-year-old Emily revealed to her mother, Laura, and Ken that she and King had entered into a relationship. With King's prodding, Emily stated that she and King planned on marrying as soon as she turned 18. This news shocked and horrified her parents. Both were devoted members of King's organization and couldn't believe their leader was capable of taking advantage of a child. He was about 10 years older than Emily's father. He was a spiritual authority. He was someone they had trusted implicitly. King was the last person they thought could be a predator. He'd known Emily since she was 13 and had helped her out of her dark place. It was a monumental breach of trust. The talk of marriage with her daughter was the worst of it all. The prospect sickened Emily's parents. It sounded like absolute nonsense. Laura didn't hesitate to call King out for his womanizing ways. According to a statement she gave to the Seattle Weekly, she said, James, you are always saying to women, you've always wanted me. That confuses grown women. What do you think that does to a 17-year-old? None of these women want you. Emily's parents left in a huff. Privately, they hoped that they could talk Emily out of being with James King. At first, Emily denied ever having sexual relations with the older man, but her parents suspected that she was just too afraid to tell them the truth. After weeks of trying to get Emily to reveal what was really going on, Emily's parents forbade her from communicating with King. But King and Loran continued reaching out over email and texts. At one point, King even pushed Emily to file a restraining order against her parents. Emily's mother confronted her daughter one more time, and this time, Emily finally admitted the full extent of her relationship with King and Barbara Loran. It was even worse than her parents had feared. There was no other word for it. They were outraged. The more they thought about it, the deeper the betrayal ran. Not only was King their spiritual leader, but Loran was Emily's primary health care provider. In their eyes, the predatory relationship violated every ethical standard in the book. In response to the entire ordeal, Laura and Ken officially left the church. They took their daughter to stay with family in a nearby town and set her up with a culty programmer. Over time, she was able to see how King and the Ran had deceived her. With these revelations fresh in their minds, Emily's family embarked on a new mission, they were going to make James King sorry he'd ever messed with their daughter. They wanted the entire church to go down in flames. Coming up, word spreads and the new Gnostic Church unravels. The most urgent mysteries in the world are missing persons cases. The stakes are too high not to pursue every plausible possibility and some implausible ones too. I'm Sarah Turney, host of the new podcast, Disappearances. In 2020, after spending years searching for the truth, I used social media to help bring justice to my sister Alyssa's nearly two decades long disappearance. Now, every Thursday on Spotify, I'm exploring the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. From child abductions and mystifying murders to those who took drastic measures to start over, each episode of Disappearances journeys through a different high-profile missing persons case, ripped from the headlines and ripe for explanation. Because no one just vanishes into thin air. 
the answers are out there, waiting to be found. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast Disappearances. Hear a new episode every Thursday, free and only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. Now back to the story. In January 2005, James King's role as spiritual leader of the new Gnostic Church was called into question. After running the organization for over a decade and engaging in sex acts with numerous members, he seemed to have reached his limit. 47-year-old King and his mistress, Barbara Loran, spent the previous fall grooming 17-year-old Emily into a sexual relationship with the two of them. When Emily's parents found out what had happened in late December 2004, they were furious. Luckily, they were able to get their daughter to a cult deprogrammer to move past the ordeal. Afterward, Emily and her parents spoke out against King's group. Emily's parents, Laura and Ken, didn't just want to leave the church themselves. They felt the other members had a right to learn exactly what King and Loran had done. They took it upon themselves to reach out to King's other followers to tell them the truth. Ken held multiple meetings, calling on devotees to question their involvement in the new Gnostic Church. He found many of them were shocked and disgusted by King and Loran's actions. Up until that point, the congregation largely respected King. They thought of him as a model of integrity. With Emily's awful revelations, everything changed. Ken used the information as a jumping-off point to encourage them to leave King high and dry. And his plan worked. The claims were severe and substantiated enough to convince many people to leave the church behind. In a matter of just a few months, the group lost almost 40 members, essentially a third of the congregation. Considering how extreme religious groups can infiltrate minds, it's very difficult to get someone to change their mindset once indoctrinated. The fact that this knowledge alone snapped so many members out of their trance is quite remarkable especially because the process is often so delicate. Ted Patrick, a professional cult deprogrammer who coined the term deprogramming in the 1970s, once wrote, When you deprogram people, you force them to think. The only thing I do is shoot them challenging questions. I hit them with things that they haven't been programmed to respond to. Patrick continued to explain, 
When the mind gets to a certain point, they can see through all the lies that they've been programmed to believe. They realize that they've been duped and they come out of it. Their minds start working again. In the case of the new Gnostic church, perhaps questioning members about James King's sexual behavior was enough to give them the jolt they needed. During this mass purge of members, Emily's parents reported King and Lorraine's transgression to the authorities. Soon after, the King County Sheriff's Office opened an investigation to determine the extent of King and Lorraine's impropriety. Emily and her family weren't sure whether they would see any justice, because it was up to the courts to decide if King or Lorraine were authorities to Emily. While that law was more nuanced, a similar state law had clearer parameters. In Washington, it was also against the law for doctors to have sex with their patients. This put Lorraine and her chiropractic clinic in real danger. After the police opened an investigation on King and Lorraine, the Seattle Weekly published an in-depth article about the church in May 2005. Following the mass exodus of followers, journalist Philip Doughty interviewed 13 former members about their experiences. According to Doughty, when they were in the church, they felt detached from and unaffected by the world, as if they were members of an elite and immune brotherhood. The glimpse into the inner workings of the new Gnostic church proved remarkable. For the first time, people shared inside information they'd likely kept, even from close relatives. It seemed that because the group was so elusive, some followers hid their involvement, even from their families. Apparently, some weren't considered worthy enough to hear King's message. But because of the new information, many people started re-examining their time in King's church, both privately and publicly. They had to wonder if it had all been for naught and whether they'd been truly conned. There were still true believers left, however. For some acolytes, no matter what they heard, they remained staunchly in favor of the church and of King. Emily's father, Ken, devoted a lot of effort to convincing the people who stayed of King's manipulation. He urged them to look more deeply into their leader's actions and question the methods he had used to get them to join the church. Unfortunately, Ken often faced anger and suspicion in response. One member who wasn't ready to abandon King became so irritated by Ken's efforts that he filed a restraining order. The courts eventually granted his request, and Ken likely scaled back on his talks with the remaining members. The spectrum of reactions to King and Loran's actions demonstrated the immense influence the couple wielded over their members. Some people were deeply entrenched in the church, it was a core part of their identity. Not everyone found it easy to break away from a belief system like that. But the story about King grooming Emily wasn't the only unsavory tale diehard members had to contend with. Soon, more uncomfortable details came to light. Beth Jeffrey, a former patient of Loran's, read the article in Seattle Weekly and was reminded of her bizarre encounter with Loran in 2002. Beth had gone to Loran for a simple chiropractic adjustment, but was hounded for hours with inappropriate questions. Loran pushed her to meet King and join the church, but Beth wasn't interested. The exchange got even more intense when Loran questioned Beth about her sexual preferences. As we mentioned in the previous episode, Loran allegedly went as far as asking if Beth liked being dominated in bed. Then Loran implied that King could help her with that. Now, in 2005, three years later, reading about King's church and Loran's inappropriate conduct with a minor, Beth felt sick. She decided to contact the authorities about her encounter. 
The Department of Health reviewed her complaint and added it to the formal investigation already taking place. The longer Loran and King were investigated, the more law enforcement found. Additional details emerged about Loran's medical malpractice. While Loran had a license to practice chiropractic medicine as well as naturopathy, she had allowed King to partake in numerous sessions with patients. Not only did King participate, but he also performed chiropractic adjustments on several people. According to the state of Washington, it was completely illegal to provide medical attention without a license. On May 24, 2005, the Chiropractic Quality Assurance Commission of the state of Washington outlined Loran's many legal violations. Authorities charged her on six different counts of abusing her medical privileges under the Department of Health's Code of Conduct. These included allowing someone unlicensed to practice on her patients and sexual contact or abuse of a patient. The commission suspended her license to practice immediately. And a few days later, when journalists attempted to reach her for a comment, they couldn't get a hold of her. She had closed operations at her practice, Endless Help Northwest. All she left behind was a voicemail on the answering machine, claiming she had lost her lease and directing patients to another clinic. Although King never had a license, the courts also ordered him to stop administering any medical treatments. Beyond that, though, the scope of discipline from this particular commission was limited to preventive measures for the time being. The news caused quite a stir, but King and Loran's reactions to the sudden inquisition are largely unknown. Not only were they being investigated for sexual misconduct with a minor, but now Loran's career was on the line. She and King had relied on her practice to gain new members and maintain their relationships with the current congregants. Now that her license was suspended, she was on notice. One wrong move could result in it being completely revoked. With many members now gone, the future of the new Gnostic Church was in jeopardy. A drop in membership also meant King's source of income was dwindling. But all that was just the tip of the iceberg. Things were about to get even worse for King and Loran. On top of both of these investigations, King found himself again under the microscope, this time for financial misconduct. On several occasions, he had taken donations from members and used them for illegal investments. So by the summer of 2005, James King faced criminal inquiries in three different areas. If charges were brought on any front, he and Loran could lose their livelihoods, pay fines, and even end up in jail. Coming up, King and Loran's fates are sealed. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Now back to the story. By late May 2005, 
James King and Barbara Loran were being investigated for sexual misconduct with a minor, medical malpractice, and unlawful financial dealings. King's new Gnostic church went from having almost 100 members to losing nearly half after news of his unethical behavior came to light. With the pending investigations, King and Loran were left unsure about the future of the church and their livelihoods. The most scandalous inquiry related to the couple's involvement with 17-year-old Emily. Authorities interviewed former members of the cult to find out details about King and Loran's relationship with the girl. In the course of those conversations, they learned new information about the way King had operated the church. Investigators soon learned how much the leader relied on consistent donations from his members. But that was only the beginning. They also discovered King took money from his followers for supposed investment opportunities. These details raised red flags and prompted authorities to open up yet another case, this time under the Department of Financial Institutions. If King had sold shares or commodities or brokered deals illegally, he would face yet more trouble. Why King decided to get involved in stock trading in the first place is a bit of a mystery, but he was likely primarily motivated by the money he could earn through commission fees. During their investigation, the authorities heard that King often preached to his members about the importance of financial literacy. He also offered them financial advice. He took advantage of his position as a community leader to get several members to hand over thousands of dollars. In the most extreme case, some donated their life savings, like an elderly woman we'll refer to as Judy, who trusted King with $78,000. That was everything she had. Around this time, King opened an offshore trust through a company called Prosper International and deposited his ill-gotten gains. He encouraged his members to open up their own trust with the same company. This, of course, allowed him to gain commission fees for each one. Investigators also delved into other business ventures King had dabbled in. He invested in gold, multivitamin schemes, and shares in companies like Advanced Products, Inc. and Health Maintenance Centers. Over the years, he personally brought each of these business ventures to members. Each time, he implored them to take advantage of these great opportunities. In total, he raked in at least $189,500 from seven Washington residents. Judy, who had entrusted King with $78,000, was told he would invest the money in gold. King gave her the impression that the money was a totally safe investment that could only increase in value. However, he never provided her with proper documentation detailing the nature of the investment or the real risks. Judy informed investigators that King kept her on the hook for years. Eventually, she discovered that her church leader had used her money to buy gold coins without telling her. When Judy asked to have the coins herself, King refused to hand them over. He said he would keep them safe until the right time. It took several more years of prodding for King to finally acquiesce. He did hand over the gold coins to Judy, but then she learned he'd lied to her. Initially, he claimed the value of the coins had gone up by $60,000. That would have brought the total value of the investment to $138,000. To Judy's dismay, however, when she took the coins to an appraiser, she found their true value was $33,000. She had lost $45,000, more than half her life savings. The investigation also uncovered details about a married couple who we'll refer to as the Smiths. 
In 2000, the Smiths gave King $75,000 to invest in a company called Health Maintenance Centers. King told them that HMC was about to go public, which was why they should invest early. He handled the transfer of money himself by writing a check under the name of his offshore trust. Just like with Judy, the Smiths weren't given adequate documentation for their investment. Making matters worse, HMC never went public. In 2003, the Securities and Exchange Commission ordered a receiver to track down all assets invested into the company and liquidate them. When the receiver contacted the Smiths to tell them about HMC, they were shocked. King assured them he would take care of it. And because he'd acted on their behalf in the first place, he received their check for $75,000. What happened next was predictable. King didn't give the Smiths their money back. And because he never provided them with the proper documentation, they had no legal claim to the check. It was an awful story, but unfortunately, all too common. In an article written for the International Cultic Studies Association titled Post-Cult Financial Recovery, Maddie Elizabeth Green wrote about her personal experience leaving a cult. In it, she discussed how common it is for recruits to be exploited financially. She wrote, I didn't realize how severely my finances were devastated until I left this group and had no savings to pay for the medical services I needed. Like Green, Judy and the Smiths were manipulated. They had a lot of work ahead of them to recover their monetary losses, if such recovery was even possible. With that, in 2005, the investigation was finally brought to a close, and the Department of Financial Institutions released a statement of charges. The document detailed King's dubious financial dealings with the members of his church. In every case, he failed to provide the proper disclosure documentation or receipts of purchase to his investors. The department found that he never discussed the risks of the investments, which is legally required from every stockbroker. On top of everything, he was never officially registered to broker investments like those under the Commodity Transactions Act. These illegal practices allowed King to pocket money that his members entrusted him with, because he never documented anything. In many scenarios, members asked for their money back, but never saw it returned. In an act of desperation, on November 21, 2005, King appeared before a U.S. bankruptcy court in Spokane. He filed for personal bankruptcy protection. While we don't know his motives, the move may have protected him from any civil complaints from former members. And things only got worse from there for King and Loran. In December, the Department of Health decided to fully revoke Loran's license. That meant Loran's career in Washington was effectively over. Meanwhile, King still awaited the outcome of his financial dealings and word from the criminal investigation into his relationship with Emily. By that point, he and Loran likely knew that the church didn't have a future in Washington. Then, in July 2006, the other shoe dropped. Authorities found King in violation of the Commodities Transaction Act. They believed his numerous violations had stemmed from his intent to cheat or defraud others. King was ordered to cease and desist from all future financial operations. The Department of Financial Institutions fined him over $60,000. Unfortunately for those defrauded, they saw little return. Judy never received more money beyond the $33,000 from her gold coins. As for the Smiths, as far as we know, they never got a dime of their money back. 
because sometime during these court proceedings, King fled the state entirely. The Department of Financial Institutions' statement of charges posits that King likely made his way to Montana. He seemed to have a soft spot for the state. It was one of the places he'd originally planned to move to with Emily. But it didn't appear that law enforcement needed to track him down. The criminal investigation into King and Loran's relationship with Emily came up short. The couple wasn't charged for sexual misconduct with a minor. While Emily and her family were likely disappointed and angry with the results, Emily told a Seattle Weekly journalist she was relieved King and Loran faced justice in other ways. After Loran's license was revoked, Emily said, Finally, I see something being done. During the turmoil, the new Gnostic church dissolved. King took down its website, perhaps so journalists and other critics couldn't have access to his teachings. All that was left of the church were the memories that resided with King, Loran, and former members. In the years that followed, there hasn't been much additional information on King's whereabouts or activities. Yet despite King's many misdeeds, the appeal he used to hold for his followers was undeniable. A former member expressed this to the Seattle Weekly, saying, He helped a lot of people get out of their mental garbage. I've never seen someone with his ability. At the same time, you know he could have continued helping more people. James did overstep his authority for sexual advantage. Helpful or not, King's emphasis on spiritual release, coupled with Loran's emphasis on wellness, seemed like the perfect cocktail to influence others. The two of them capitalized on people's need for self-improvement just when the self-help movement was surging in popularity throughout the country. King's processing sessions blended wellness culture and spirituality to entice new members. In a Cultic Studies Review article, Spiritual Harm in New Religions, religious studies scholar Dr. Philip Charles Lucas stated, For many, powerful spiritual experiences provided them with one of their primary motivations for joining and remaining with their particular community. He suggests that these spiritual experiences can be powerful enough to keep people in cults for a long time. Unfortunately, the spiritual benefits King's religion may have provided didn't outweigh the harm he and Loran caused. He exploited his followers financially, medically, and sexually. Now, the disbanded members of his church have been left to pick up the pieces and figure out new ways to get the fulfillment they need. Thanks again for tuning in to Cults. We'll be back next Tuesday with a new episode. For more information on the Gnostic Church and its members, amongst the many sources we used, we found the Seattle Weekly article titled The God Life by Philip Doughty extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Cults is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Juan Borda, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Kitovich. This episode of Cults was written by Lena Olson, with writing assistance by Robert Tyler Walker and Terrell Wells, fact-checking by Claire Cronin, and research by Brian Petrus and Chelsea Wood. Cults stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. I'm Sarah Turney, host of the new Spotify original from Parcast, Disappearances. 
Every Thursday, join me for an exploration into history's most gripping missing persons cases. Following timelines, analyzing clues, and piecing together as many answers as possible to find the truth. From prison breaks and child abductions to second chances and even murder. We'll journey through the many reasons people disappear. Follow my new podcast, Disappearances, free and only on Spotify.